Greetings, everyone. My name is Shahidur Rashid, and I'm the director for South Asia Deepri. And I'll be your moderator today. We have a fantastic panel lined up for you today. They'll be talking about a topic which is important globally, but I would say it's critically important for our region, which is South Asia. And the topic, broad topic is food and agricultural trade in the new policy environment. And the question we are asking today is how can WTO members support economic recovery and resilience? We'll be asking this question in the context of seven very contentious issues that are being discussed at the WTO for many years. Our goal here today is to shed some lights on the critical issues that various region, sub-regions are facing in the run-up to WTO's 12th Ministerial Conference, NC12. So this is part of a series of consultations. We have had one on the 17th of November in, in French-speaking Africa or Francophone Africa, one on the 23rd of November in Latin America, and, and another one on the 8th of December, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Anglophone Africa or English-speaking Africa. So for South Asia, I could not possibly have imagined a better group of experts than the one we have today to discuss these issues with a regional perspective. So I'd like to begin by thanking them for taking the time to join us today and with a very brief introduction. So first I'd like to introduce, uh, she has not joined yet, uh, hopefully she'll join, uh, Ambassador Gotami Silva, she is the permanent mission. She's with the permanent mission of Sri Lanka to the WTO in Geneva. Uh, hopefully, she can make it. Next, I have is um, Secretary Aisha Moriani. She is a civil servant heading up the WTO wing within the Ministry of Commerce in Pakistan. Thank you, Madam Secretary, for taking the time and joining us today. Next, I have Professor Avijit Das head of the Center for WTO Studies, Indian Institute of Foreign Trade. He has a distinguished record, track record of engagement with UNCTAD and WTO. Professor Das, is a real pleasure to have you on today. Thank you for your time. Our fourth speaker is Dr. Famida Khatun, the Executive Director of the Center for Policy Dialogue in Bangladesh, CPD in Bangladesh, very widely respected think tank uh, Dr. Khatun, this is your second time joining an IPRI event this year. So on behalf of IPRI, I'd like to thank you one more time. And finally, we have Mr. Ajaybir Jakar. He's the chairman of the Bharat Krishak Samaj India. Mr. Jakar is a very active member of the global development community. He is one of the UN food champion and vice chair of one of the action track for 2021 Food System Summit. Very grateful for you taking the time, Mr. Jacker, for this event from your busy schedule. Now to set the stage, let me uh, be specific about seven WTO issues that I alluded to at the beginning. And the first one that we are dealing with here is domestic support for agriculture. This covers talks on how farm subsidies can be disciplined or rationalized. It has been a very sticky topic for a very long time. Uh, second is a possible permanent solution to the problems some developing countries continue to face when buying food on 
for public stock. This is an important food security question, relevant for our region, relevant for all developing countries. Third one is a broad one, is access to market. This is critically important for countries to grow, countries to integrate in the global market. So it, this will continue to be discussed in the future as well. The fourth topic I have is a special safeguard mechanism for developing countries to address temporary price dispersions or the price volatility or price stabilization policies. We have several policies in place in our region. You are aware of that, the food price stabilization policies, such as minimum support price, if you can remember that in today's context. The fifth one is export competition, including it's not just the competition, it includes measures seen as things like export subsidies. So sixth one is export restrictions, including the recent proposal to exempt W World Food Program's purchase for humanitarian food aid. So WTO, you know, there's a Nobel laureate this year, have done phenomenal work over time addressing humanitarian crisis. So those issues are on the table as well. The last one is a cotton issue, which is a sticky point for the Western African region, not so much for our region, but for India and Pakistan, it does have implication. Now, in the context of COVID-19 crisis, the importance of these issues have been magnified. So along with other policy and market development, um, so it gives us an opportunity to revisit the policy frameworks for trade in agriculture. It is also an opportunity to consider what governments can do differently to best support food security, rural livelihood, and environmental sustainability. We'd also like to hear from the participants who we have joined remotely today uh, to participate in the conversation during the question and answer session that will follow the presenter's remark. Please submit your questions on ipri.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using hashtag AskIPRI on Twitter. That is A-S-K-I-F-P-R-I on Twitter. Okay, that is the background. With that, let me move on to the first theme of our discussion today. And the first theme is of course COVID-19 and how it has impacted our agri-food markets. And my first question goes to Dr. Famida Khatun. Here is the question for you, Famida. We all know COVID has disrupted global agri-food markets. It has disrupted particularly the perishable commodity market in our region. So what implication do you think these disruption have for South Asia broadly? But you can certainly bring your own perspective based on your own research in Bangladesh. Over to you, Famida. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me to this August gathering and to speak on a subject which is very important for Bangladesh and also for South Asian countries. As you have um, just mentioned um, during your you know, pre-phase that the importance of agriculture, uh, agricultural negotiation in the context of World Trade Organization is so important. And particularly when you talk about um, you know, reviving the economy and also 
addressing the needs of the vulnerable people. In South Asian countries, countries in general, if, even before the COVID-19, a large number of people were in fact below the poverty line and then you know, who, who have limited income and who have also uh, limited you know, nutritional access. So COVID-19 is going to decrease their you know, food availability even more. In this respect, I would like to specifically um, make a few recommendations. First one is that, you know, as we have seen that South Asian countries in general has been going through, have been going through a structural transformation whereby we have seen the uh, contribution of agriculture sector in the economy has declined. However, a large number of people are employed in the agriculture sector and also agriculture sector is the crucial sector for food, ensuring food security. Now with COVID-19 um, situation, we have seen that South Asian countries had managed um, quite well, I would say, particularly in the context of Bangladesh, we have seen bumper production even during COVID-19 uh, situation. However, if such situation that crisis like uh, COVID exist for a longer period, then there is a problem because as I have mentioned that the, you know, the agriculture sector's contribution has shrunk and also uh, in many countries we have not seen much innovation. So first one is that the agriculture sector needs more investment. So even though this is the life uh, and livelihoods for many, but we have not seen much investment in, this, you know, in the agriculture sector. In general, there is a dearth of public expenditure in all the sectors, uh, in the infrastructure also. However, agriculture is you know, gradually uh, you know, getting less and less uh, investment. So this brings me to the second um, point, which is also related to investment, is the use of uh, technology and innovation. There also investment is very, very important because uh, South Asian countries are also vulnerable to a lot of shocks, including the impact of climate change. So uh, in order to prepare for uh, you know, the climate change, the impact of climate change and you know, um, also for uh, water resistant food, uh, agriculture, you know, rice varieties and all pro uh, agriculture productions, uh, technological innovation is very, very important. But we have seen, I can say in the context of Bangladesh, there is always a lack of resource or dearth of resources in case of R&D. So that, that is uh, crucial. And then also the third issue, again, related to finance and all is that access to finance by the farmers themselves, because um, because of the nature of uh, the production system or the agriculture itself, a large uh, you know, a number of farmers, they, are, uh, they have limited uh, finance. So though in our country, uh, there is uh, support from the government in terms of subsidies or incentives, but however, access to those uh, incentives are also not equal across the board. Uh, in many cases, the smaller ones do not have equal access. However, uh, they are the ones who are who are going to be affected. So this is uh, again very very important. Finally, I would say that in case of you know food policy itself, when you talk about food policies within the country, uh, then we need to specifically remember probably 
uh, at least four groups of people. One would, of course, these those who are below poverty, who are vulnerable to various price shocks, and also those who are below extreme poverty. And by the way, during COVID nineteen, there have there are more poor people, and a set of new poor have. Uh, has added to these already existing poor people. So those are the people who need to be you know, kept in mind. And then uh, the urban poor and also the women, uh, particularly, because we have seen that in terms of nutritional status, um, women are the ones who are mostly deprived, particularly during crisis. So I would say that you know, when uh, regarding the um, balancing of these um, of the various economic actors within the agriculture sector, for example, the producers, the consumers, and many others in the whole value chain, there is a you know always a struggle uh, by governments particularly those who have limited resources because one is that you know you would, the uh, producers have to be given adequate incentives uh, and also given the prices um, the fair prices so that they are incentivized they can produce more but on the other hand the governments also have to uh, make the food available uh, to the consumers so that they can access to the food, uh, food and other commo agriculture commodities at an affordable price. So making a fine balance has always been uh, a challenge. However, there are a number of you know, uh, established policies. And one is, of course, the, the procurement of the producers by the governments at an affordable price, at a, at a price which is good for or incentivized price for the uh, agricultural farmers. That's one thing. And also in terms of you know, consumers, there again, one basic you know, or overarching issue is that, that improvement of income and in, improvement of opportunities so that people have income or money in their hand to buy for, uh, food because we have seen that food self-sufficiency does, does not itself bring food security. So there are many countries in the world, but not that you know, everyone gets access to that food. So in order to have an equitable access to food, uh, income opportunities, employment opportunities, these are the issues uh, which are very important. So that brings us to the overall macro policies, actually. So when, it, when we are just you know, undergoing this crisis, the many governments, all the governments in the world have undertaken measures, uh, which are basically the fiscal measures. That means that you know, public expenditure have to be increased and also people have to be given resources, uh, direct cash transfer to the poor people so that they have income in their hands, they can spend that and they can you know, protect themselves, they can stay afloat. So this, at this point in time, fiscal measures is very important. I think I would stop in the interest of time, I, uh, my time is up. So in the next session, probably I'll add. Thank you, more. thank you so much. Very insightful thoughts, very uh, specific focus areas for intervention. Very helpful, but we need to come back to the core question about the dis disruption in the food value chain, how that has impacted our <coughs> consumers and producers. Hopefully you can do that in a second round. Okay, so next question I have is for um, Mr. Uh, Jakar. Mr. Jakar, uh, 
you lead one of the largest farmers organization and you are also a farmer yourself. You do citrus farming, I understand. So I would like your India specific insights in my next question, or you could call it thoughts. And here it is. We all know Indian agriculture has shown remarkable resilience to the pandemic. While overall economy, Indian economy contracted, agriculture sector is expected to grow over 3%. So my question to you is this, how did Indian farmers do it? Not only in terms of production, but also in terms of marketing amid an unprecedented pandemics. Over to you, Mr. Jaukar. Uh, thank you for this opportunity uh, that you have me here giving my opinion. I would want to say that when the lock, uh, let's let's begin when when the lockdown happened. When the lockdown happened, everything was closed, and it impacted the producers adversely everywhere. Uh, for example, the price of eggs went down from four rupees fifty pesa to one rupee fifty pesa. The price of milk went down from thirty five to twenty six per liter. The maize which was selling at over 2000 rupees per quintal went down to 1300 also what happened is the pandemic after the lockdown people were allowed to go back from from cities lots of migration happened for the first time i think so in the history of mankind people were leaving urban areas and going back to rural areas it might have happened 2000 years ago of which i don't know but in the recent history this is the first time it happened it led to a very peculiar situation where lots of migrant labor were coming back to the villages and in states like UP, Bihar, Jharkhand, Odisha, and maybe 50% of India or maybe 70% of India, the wages went down for agricultural labor. So they went down from something like 200 to 250 rupees per day to something like 150 rupees per day. And on the other side, when, when paddy sowing season was beginning in Punjab, the price went up from three uh, from uh, the from three thousand rupees per acre to something like five to six thousand rupees per acre for for sowing of paddy so this is how uh, things got impacted but this was in the initial months what we see as a longer term consequence of the pandemic on producers is that they are economically stressed as the rest of the population and they have taken on debt also, which they have not been able to repay back. The repayment cycle has, has, has stopped. And consequently, as the whole population of the country is going under economic stress, as has been uh, very clearly articulated by government of India data itself, that uh, the economy uh, was, was depressed for so many months, it, it is recovering now slowly, that people have less money to spend and they're spending less on fruits and vegetables, less they're spending, maybe they're spending equal amount on, on food, but on nutrition, on, on, on good food, they're spending less. And those who have the money, uh, though that section of the society which has the money is spending less because they're uncertain of their future. So the demand for fruits and vegetables has gone down substantially. And even though supply lines have come back on, there is not much to supply that much. So things have gone down. And if you will see within the within the few months of the pandemic where supply got hit, it, it would have normally, and uh, in, in, if, if, I mean, I'm not a student of economics, but they tell you that if supply gets hit, there would be huge inflation. So even if the supply got hit, there was no inflation because people were not eating much. They were eating less. So that's another problem. And uh, my time is gonna be up. So I'll just take two more minutes. I mean, not even two, 30 seconds. 
a huge demand for farmers produce comes from marriage ceremonies from parties from restaurants now that supply has got absolutely devastated and there is no demand for that and that leads to suppression of farm gate prices for farmers i being a citrus farmer can very clearly tell you that my citrus got harvested before the pandemic so i i i did not suffer as much consequently for my citrus but now because of less merit season less requirement of juice for which my citrus uh, is used normally for or there's a tabletop variety the prices are suppressed by at least 20 to 30% because of people having less money to spend and uh, last point is that people when they were living in the cities i mean all rural people have some member of the family which is who's working in the city or working off the farm which supports the farm income of the family of the part of the family staying in the village those remittances have come to an end and that has also created a big situation big uh, adverse impact on livelihoods of of people living in the villages this remittances coming to an end so i'll just leave it at that and we'll maybe come back in the next session thank you so much ambassador to you is have recent trade tensions affected economies in south asia if so which products and producers have been most affected and how uh first uh, let me um thank wholeheartedly uh, uh, for the organizers uh, particularly jonathan and the entire team uh, for having invited me uh, to uh, present uh, my weaves uh, sri lanka's weaves and uh, on this uh, very important topic of trade tensions Uh, it's not new to WTO. The studies and empirical data on trade and trade diversion effects of the United States, mainly on China, uh, show that the trade tensions have resulted in a sharp decline in bilateral trade, higher prices for consumers, and trade diversion effects due to the increased inputs from countries not directly involved in trade wars. That's where the South Asia comes in. By analyzing recently released trade statistics, the study finds uh, that consumers in the U.S. are bearing the heaviest brunt uh, of the U.S. tariffs on China, as their associated costs uh, have largely been passed down to, the, to them and importing firms in the form of higher prices. The studies also find that Chinese firms have recently started uh, absorbing part of the cost of the tariffs by reducing the price of their uh, exports. The results of such studies uh, uh, serve as uh, global warnings. A loose, uh, loose trade war is not only harming the main contenders. It also compromises the stability of the global economy and future growth, including South Asia. It would be more logical to assume that the U.S. tariffs on China have made other players, including countries in South Asia, more competitive in the U.S. market and led to a trade diversion effect. Out of 33, uh, $35 billion U.S. dollars Chinese export loses in the export, uh, U.S. market, about around $21 billion, uh, approximately 63% was diverted to other countries, while the remainder of $14 billion was either lost or captured by U.S. producers. In developing Asia, the effects from the trade conflict had been mildly, mildly positive as the region benefited from trade redirection in electronics and textiles. According to the empirical data, US tariffs on China resulted in Chinese Taipei, uh, particularly gaining a 4.2 billion in additional exports to the US in the first half of 2019 by selling more office, fish, office uh, machinery and communication equi equipment. Next is Vietnam. 
exposed to the US swelled uh, by 2.6 billion, driven by trading communication equipment and furniture. Trade diversion also benefits South Korea, Canada, and India were, were smaller, but still substantial, ranging from uh, 0.9 billion US dollars to 1.5 uh, billion US dollars. In addition, Latin America, of course, Mexico uh, recorded somewhat uh, uh, a modest um, increase, mostly in agri-food, agri transport equipment, and electronic machinery uh, sectors. The remainder of the benefits were largely to the advantage of other South Asian countries, such as Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Pakistan in South Asia. This indicates that except India and Pakistan, other countries in South Asia have not significantly been benefited uh, from the trade tensions. Similarly, trade tension affects, the, uh, affects favoring African region has been quite minimal. Now, effects on the sectors, uh, I think that is one of the things that I have been asked to comment on. Uh, as I mentioned before, mainly office machinery, machinery parts, electrical machinery, chemicals, communication equipment, metals and ore, precision equipment, and agri-food products. Uh, textile and apparel are the sectors uh, in the highest order of diversion effects. Now, when you look at the trade diversion uh, from China to other countries, uh, particularly in the agri-food sector, uh, the estimated trade diversion is 100%. Uh, economies in developing Asia has seen exports rising, reflecting trade uh, redirection in these sectors, mainly the two main sectors, uh, electrical uh, and textile and clothing. Though this list indicates this, uh, the most hard hit sectors, but trade diversion effects in these sectors have been varied as some effects were well below uh, average, possibly because uh, the lack of supply uh, capacity outside China. So the, the trade, though there was in encouragement for trade diversions, uh, most the countries couldn't uh, really uh, grab that opportunity because they lacked the supply sources. Finally, the caveat is that when you look talking of this trade direction, redirection effect, it will uh, take longer uh, and the, uh, the lengthier and more complex the global value chains are. And the ensuring interruption um, to production could be more proactive. There may be secondary disruption effects from the possibility of production activities that uh, took advantage of low cost labor in Asia and return to US due to the tariffs will become, uh, will become highly automated uh, in the US and increased negative employment effects uh, automated in the US and increased negative employment uh, effects further. The situation uh, also may lead up to the US authorities becoming more vigilant on transshipments coming from other countries in the region due to the possible circumventing practices likely to be uh, practiced by the exporters in China to circumvent these high tariffs. Uh, the ultimate possible setbacks for countries in South Asia uh, would uh, take the form of them being subject to unnecessary anti-circumventing uh, investigations to be initiated by the US authorities. So I think uh, I'll, uh, I'll um, stop at this point, uh, uh, maybe due to the time constraints. So certainly uh, these are some of the uh, sectors and, uh, and the countries uh, who have either benefited uh, uh, in a modest way or big way and in minimal way. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank yes. you, Madam Ambassador.
for your insight. So next question to uh, Mr. Jacker. I know you are the co-chair of the Action Track 2 on the UN Food System Summit 2021. And Action Track 2 is responsible consumption, which has direct links to having sustainable food system and environment. So I was wondering if you could reflect on what governments in our region could do differently to help develop a healthy and environmentally sustainable food system for the next generation. Floor is yours, Mr. Jacker. I would want to say there's a book, Radical Uncertainty, written by John Kay and Mariel King, you know, where they write that effective leaders understand that they have superior responsibility rather than superior wisdom. I think so leaders in South Asia and in Africa, right? Why South Asia and Africa? I think so even, even, in, even in England and USA and I think so everywhere, they need to realize that they, they, they are not, they're not endowed with superior wisdom. They need to understand, they need to talk to stakeholders, they need to understand. We also find in much of the world, including uh, in our part of the continent, that bureaucracy and the government are so fixated on outcomes and they don't work on the processes and which results in failure to meet objectives of a policy. And uh, that is why, uh, Dr. Rashid, you will see that, uh, especially in India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, uh, Nepal, Sri Lanka, and maybe I, I have less experience of other places, you will find constantly this narrative comes in is that it's an implementation fate. I, I as a farmer on the ground feel this is absolutely wrong. I think uh, policies, fail to get implemented properly because they are not reflective of ground realities. They're made by people sitting in air conditioned offices. And as a farmer, this is, this, is, this, is, this is a point of what we can do better. So the first thing we need to do is we need to improve the quality of governance for delivery to happen. And that means you have to start talking to stakeholders, need to spend more time designing processes than investing. I think more important than investing resources is to design the process to decide where to invest that money. Just giving more money for public infrastructure is not going to work. Uh, I'll take, uh, maybe I have a, a minute and a half to go. And I, I would also want to talk and put this point very much across is that uh, if you look at the number of chronic hungry people in the world, if you look at the people who are under nutrition, is rising every year. And you will see that those who produce the food are under nutrition and those who buy the food are obese, the consumers are obese. So obviously the food systems have failed us. And that is exactly why the UN Food Systems Summit is being held in September of 2021. This is exactly what it is about. And that's where we come in and we, we try and prepare a, a documentation that the countries will be free to adopt should they feel about it because the document is not a negotiated document that's gonna come from member states of the UN. It's, it's also important to look at what could be the cause of it. What are farmers thinking is the cause of this undernutrition on the farms? I mean, it's, it's an irony. Those who produce food are the ones who are more and more dependent on markets for food. So two things have been constant about, about why this problem, why farmers are feeling this problem is there. One is that since WTO was, itself was formed, people feel that the majority of farmers have suffered because of it. And when I say majority, I mean, I'm not talking about political boundaries. WTO is not a food systems approach. WTO, the time I think so is up. It was a silos approach. We're looking at a systems approach about how climate change uh, mitigation can happen. So if you look at a worldwide food systems approach, this, is, this needs a rethink. It's not a sacrosanct policy when we realize that majority of the world 
farmers are suffering because of it we need to think country states need to come back to the table and and decide how it must be done it's le leading to the largest migration in human history people are leaving urban uh, rural areas for urban areas because agriculture is not sustainable it drives down farm gate prices for food importing countries so it's 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 a much bigger thing so i would just want thank to leave you. it at thank that thank you mr jakhar thank you thank you thank you so much for your very insightful discussion but i would like to push back a little bit because all the trade policies can impact regionally. So if you say the WTO policies are silos, I would have um, disagreement with that. But anyway, that's why we have this round table and conversation. Uh, let me come back to another issue, yeah. which is globally, I'll come back to you if you have time, uh, globally very popular topic right now. And you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the trade tension, trade policy tension about the major economies of the world, uh, in case in point is the US and China. So that issue has implication for the developing countries as well. So my question goes to Professor Abhijit Das, who has been actually a policymaker, Indian civil servant, has worked for the WTO, as well as worked for the UNCTAD, a lot of experiences. Could you reflect on how this kind of bilateral trade tension having impact in our region, South Asia generally, and to India in particular. Thank you, floor is your Professor Das. Thank you, Dr. Shahid. At the outset, I'm grateful to the organizers for inviting me to share my views. As Ambassador Gautami very rightly mentioned that the trade tensions between US and China really did not lead to any trade diversion, which could be said to have favored uh, the South Asian countries. When it comes to food and agriculture, perhaps the trade diversion, if at all uh, benefited any country, that was Mexico. South Asian countries really did not benefit from it. In terms of specific implications of the trade tensions, let me mention three or four. One consequence of the trade tension is that the United States government decided to grant uh, tens of billions of dollars of subsidies to its farmers. Now, that does pose a problem for, for agriculture in South Asia. What happens if some of these agriculture products, uh, which are highly subsidized, uh, enter our markets? That definitely could pose a threat to livelihoods of uh, millions of farmers in South Asia. Then the second consequence has been of this trade tension that the US and China have imposed retaliatory tariffs, counter tariffs against each other, many of which is very questionable in terms of legality at the WTO. In short, the respect for WTO rules has declined and that uh, is getting manifested in a number of ways. Another implication of the rising trade tensions uh, between these two major countries is the fact that we are seeing new narratives emerging at the WTO. One of the new narratives which, is, which has emerged is that developing countries really should not be entitled for special and differential treatment. Now, this really is alarming. When we look very carefully at the agreement on agriculture at the WTO, that's an agreement which is highly asymmetric, it is highly imbalanced in favor of the developed countries. And I would stick my neck out and say 
that this is an agreement which has reversed special and differential treatment provisions, special and differential treatment provisions in favor of the developed countries. Now, the narrative that is thought to be built is that developing countries must not must not have access to special and differential treatment in general, whereas the developed countries can continue to have their inverse SNDT in the agreement on agriculture. That definitely poses huge challenges for the agriculture sector in the South Asian countries. Another narrative which has emerged is that it is really the developing countries which are distorting the global agriculture markets by providing subsidies. Now, this is again a highly problematic, highly difficult narrative to accept. And if we look at some of the proposals that have been made by some of the WTO members, the implications of those proposals really are that if we look at a time horizon of let's say one decade down the line, some of the proposals would require developing countries such as India to make huge cuts in their farm support. Whereas the developed world really would not make any meaningful cuts. On the contrary, one of the proposal actually will result in the United States having a flexibility to enhance its farm support. So under this, uh, as a consequence, partly of the trade tensions, the attention is slowly getting diverted from getting the developed countries to cut their farm support. And instead, the developing countries are being painted as being villain of the peace, and they will be asked to take commitments that will really tie the hands of their governments to provide whatever minuscule support they can provide, given the fact that they don't have very deep pockets. In particular, the flexibility of these countries to provide input subsidies to their farmers, that is under threat. So I'm going to stop at that and Thank maybe come so back much. to this uh, later. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. This very passionate, powerful arguments. But again, for us, questions remain, right? I mean, we have been talking about these developing country subsidies for decades. It hasn't happened. So the, our question was in the context of this trade tension, was there something for us to be more forceful in making these arguments? So that will continue to remain, I think, in the future. Uh, let me go back now, come back to uh, Dr. Fahmida Khatun on, um, the issue related to the very delicate balance that we are talking about, you have seen in the media about farmers protest in India. This is the balancing act of dealing with the interest of the consumers and producers, and of course, all value chain actors in between. Uh, what kind of policies can our region do so that this is also in line with what uh, Mr. Jacker has pointed out, what can we do? What kind of policy levers do we have to make that balance, have balanced policies that can benefit farmers at the same time producers? And at the end, we can develop a sustainable food system. Uh, Fabi, the floor is yours. 
Thank you very much. Um, as I have mentioned in my first segment that the agriculture sector's investment has been quite low compared to you know, other sectors. And this is a sector where government has to come forward. What we have seen that the structure of the agriculture, uh, particularly in Bangladesh, is that the fragmentation is quite large. I mean, those who are into production, the scale, the size of you know, farm sizes are low, which is a, a real problem in terms of scaling up. This is one. And then also the larger farmers uh, who are not necessarily, you know, farmers um, on the ground, but they control the whole farming system and agriculture to a large extent. So the benefits which are given are mostly enjoyed by them. So in order to uh, you know, benef get benefited from the whole uh, value chain of this agriculture, uh, there are a number of uh, areas where the uh, farmers can be supported by government because uh, in this respect, I would also like to mention that, you know, when you talk about agriculture, it is not only crops, but also other agriculture, for example, the fisheries. Uh, so it, during this COVID-19, we have seen that the, you know, fish farmers have also been hit hard. Again, um, the fish, uh, many of the, you know, fish farming uh, also uh, are um, controlled by the large ones, but the smaller ones are affected and particularly, you know, the SMEs, the small and medium enterprises within the whole farming system, uh, fish farming system, particularly, they had been without, uh, without uh, financial support and the uh, the fiscal stimulus, which has been uh, announced by the government, which is quite substantive for a, for a least developed country, I would say, which is for about 4% of the GDP, that has not also target, you know, has been targeted to many uh, sectors within the agriculture. Fish uh, farmers uh, is one of the sectors, though there are some allocation. So um, I would say that, you know, one of the other issues I would say uh, is that the direct financial support fiscal support is one important area and also the you know the when you talk about the balancing the purchasing power of people uh, is important because you, you produce the farmers are producing but who will purchase if there's no market and uh, uh, then you know many we have in our country also we have in many instances we have seen that you know the milk producers are throwing the milk on the roads or you know, potato producers, they are also you know, throwing the potatoes. This brings to the issue of investment in areas, for example, the storage capacity, which is also a requirement uh, for the you know, farmers, many of those who cannot uh, particularly afford to, uh, to have a cold storage support from the government is needed and also the you know um, uh, the uh, other issue is that the those who are particularly many women are also involved in the agriculture sector they have been more affected than others so when you talk about the whole food value chain looking at the smaller ones are important and those who are vulnerable that's also important in this respect if i also may you know broaden the horizon that you know if we 
uh, are governed by international trade policies, then there is a problem. My previous speaker very eloquently uh, touched upon those. I would also like to touch upon a few of these, or maybe just specific one particular issue, the subsidy discipline uh, issue, this, uh, disciplining in the context of WTO. Particularly, the, there's a big discussion on fisheries subsidies. You know, large countries are, or developed countries are um, providing uh, subsidies, fish subsidies. There's uh, you know, no, um, we don't see any uh, ray of hope in terms of wrapping up the subsidies, fisheries subsidies. But on the other hand, countries like Bangladesh, they are asked to reduce subsidies. But fisheries subsidies is very important, particularly for the small scale fisheries. That's the source of livelihoods for many large, uh, many farmers, many small farmers. And also this is a source of nutrition. So I think the you know, coherence within the global trading system, multilateral trading system, that also very important. I think my time is up. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thanks. Coming back to the increasing uh, public investment in agriculture, R&D infrastructure, these are really, really good points. But I was also thinking that regional trade per se could do a lot of good to the people of our region. So South Asia intra-regional trade is so low compared to even South Asia does more trade with Eastern Asia or ASEAN countries than does among ourselves. Maybe there are rooms there as well as a policy lever moving forward. Um, but thank you so much. Hopefully, I will have time to come back. I understand that uh, Madam Secretary Moriani is not with us. Uh, so what uh, I'll do, I'll pose a question. The next question that I have to Mr. Chakar, and that question is, how best the governments of our region support farmers to enhance competitiveness of the agricultural sector taking into consideration the particular challenges that smallholders face in the region. Um, Mr. Jakar. Uh, uh, thank you uh, for that, uh, Dr. Shri. I, I, before I answer that, I just want to quickly come back on, on, uh, on trade within, within our uh, physical areas here. My, my sure. farm is on the border with Pakistan in Punjab. Mm -hmm. And okay. we, are we are closer to Kabul and Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan than we are to Cochin or you could say Madras. Mm -hmm. And, and if, if, if relationships improved, uh, a lot of diversification in Punjab could happen because uh, we, 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 we face uh, bad relations with our neighbors. And that's why we, we, are, we are denied access to Central Asian markets for our produce. So I think... Uh, really, in, because th this is one of the discussions today was of uh, international relations, how it impacts trade. So I think if relations were to improve, uh, Punjab could diversify away from paddy and wheat, and we would have uh, very good markets available for our produce in Central Asia, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan. And as 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 someone from Punjab, I think that's that's very important. But uh, other than that, I think. Uh, Coming back to what the government can do is, I think we need to relook at the whole system of subsidies that are being provided mm -hmm. to farmers. There could be input subsidies, there could be output subsidies. We need to relook at them and holistic, holistically redesign the whole uh, agriculture food policy space. And I think that requires, that cannot be done by the government on its own. It cannot be done uh, by, uh, by the universities. 
And the last point I would say is that the government needs to focus first on human resources and basic research and then come to infrastructure. We normally have a tendency to prioritize infrastructure, brick and mortar. I, as a farmer, think we need to flip that model around now and we need to focus on human resources and uh, basic research. This is where, what we should be uh, focusing on if, if you want to plan for a longer term, uh, longer term issues of India's food security and nutrition security. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Jakar. This is very um, relevant for our region in terms of the, this is also related to the point that uh, Dr. Kaplan made about enhancing investment in agriculture. Well, I think India spends about 1% of the GDP in agriculture R&D. So unless we change that, I think we'll have problem uh, educating, having the technological know-how and the human capacity to move the agriculture forward in the context of the smallholder farming. So thank you very much for those uh, points. Um, I would now like to come to um, Professor Das again. Um, that is actually in the context of the regional trade. I'd like to take that point with you as well. What do you think why you have been working on WTU? WTU couldn't do anything increasing the intra-regional trade. Now we are talking about a pandemic of the unprecedented size and we are falling behind with SDG targets and we are falling behind with targets on uh, climate change and number of other things. So what can we do in here as a region so that you have a powerful voice at the WTO to make a difference for this reality? Over to you, Professor Das. Thank you, Dr. Rashid. Uh, regional trade certainly is an important instrument of fostering development, but me let, uh, let me also hasten to add that uh, this should not be meant to imply that uh, countries in South Asia should proactively seek out uh, and negotiate free trade agreements in the major markets. That would be fraught with huge risks and in the context of agriculture, let me just mention that uh, free trade agreements uh, do not end up addressing issues of subsidies. On the other hand, tariffs would come down, might come down to zero. So countries in South Asia would really not have any policy instrument left to protect their farm sector from cheap imports from their FTA partners, particularly the developed countries who give huge subsidies to their farm sector. So that's the first point we need to bear in mind. What can we do collectively? Collectively, I think the South Asian countries on many of the agriculture issues have uh, joined hands and they do have a bit of a common voice. One area where they've uh, had a common voice is the need to restore the dispute settlement mechanism of the WTO to its uh, original status. That is a two-stage dispute settlement mechanism, something that has withered away with, uh, on account of uh, certain actions by the United States, which has resulted in a rule-based system getting replaced by a power-based system. That doesn't bode well for us countries in South Asia. 
So we do need to strive hard to see that the dispute settlement system gets back on its feet, the appellate body gets back on its feet, that is number one. Number two, on many of the issues of uh, real interest to countries in South Asia and agriculture, number one was getting rid or getting the developed countries to reduce their farm support. There is a proposal jointly by India and China on the table, which seeks to curtail the flexibilities of developed countries in respect of what are what's popularly called the amber box subsidies. That could go a long way in protecting the agriculture sector in South Asian countries. Then there are certain issues for which there is a negotiating mandate to go ahead, but we really have not uh, seen much progress. Uh, Mr. Chairman, you alluded to those two issues uh, in your opening remarks, namely the need to address uh, and successfully conclude uh, the negotiations on a permanent solution for the public stockholding issue. That's an issue of uh, huge interest, not only to South Asian countries, but I would say at least a dozen or even 20 odd uh, developing countries across the world who really are at the risk of uh, their uh, food security programs being uh, held illegal at the WTO. Then the other issue is of uh, developing countries, particularly those in South Asia, acquiring a legal right to impose additional tariffs going beyond their uh, existing uh, WTO entitlements. Whenever there's a surge in imports or low priced imports come into their country, they could invoke what is called a special safeguard duty. Let's bear in mind that uh, the developed countries have acquired or they arrogated to themselves this right at the end of the Uruguay round. Most of the developing countries do not have this right. During the Doha round, the developing countries uh, as a group called G33 were at the mm -hmm. forefront in trying to acquire this right. We did see some progress in that direction, but those negotiations could not be concluded. So there I do find uh, a need for developing countries, particularly in South Asia, to see if they thank can you, join thank hands. Thank you, Professor Das. Thank you so much. We are right. actually just being cognizant of time. We are running a bit late, but the discussion is very, very exciting discussion that we are having here. I need to come back to Madam Ambassador uh, Silva. I have actually two questions. One, first, I would like to get your thoughts on why SAPTA or BIMSTEC, all these regional bodies have not been so successful in raising their voice and making a change within the WTO contest in the WTO discussion. Number, number that is one. But my main question for you, Madam Ambassador, is that how can WTO members ensure that MC12, meaning Ministerial Conference 12th season, contribute towards meaningful progress on food security and rural development in South Asia. With this, I think after um, Madam Ambassador's response, we'll go to Q&A. So please keep sending your questions online or hashtag tutorip.org. 
any way you can. Thank you. It could be uh, the questions, uh, very valuable questions. Uh, uh, and uh, first on the BIMSTEC and SATPA, why uh, they are lagging behind. I think uh, when we, as a negotiator uh, who had negotiated these agreements in the past from Sri Lanka side, what I noted is that uh, there are uh, political dimensions as well, uh, which are hindering um, uh, you know, progress. Uh, but in addition to that, I think uh, we are quite uh, uh, producers uh, of the same products and then everyone uh, is having, uh, when you look at uh, the, the outcome of these negotiations, we are having huge negative lusts, uh, which are not open for, a tra tra for trading among, uh, among the member states. And basically the agriculture sector is uh, very uh, closely uh, protected by everyone. And uh, so when you are competitive, when you have competitive edge over some of the products, when they are not traded among the trading partners, that actually itself is a, is a, is a handicap for, for the improvement of trade among them. And uh, the, the issue is that uh, they, when, they, when they resort to such uh, measures, and also Professor Das said, uh, uh, sometimes uh, the cheap imports are coming from uh, these countries, so they have to really have mechanisms to protect them. Now, we do not have, I don't know, where under SEPTA and SEPTA, uh, there are bilateral or regional uh, safeguard mechanisms that are inbuilt. But still, uh, they are, they, if you are invoking them, uh, they, they are governed by certain WTO rules. Uh, I think uh, when we negotiated one with the, uh, with, uh, with, uh, or rather we when we were framing something with the BIM stack. So I think we might we very much align those provisions in line with the WTO provisions where you have to carry out an investigation and there has to be a petition. So like that, I think there again, so therefore they are not willing to open up those sectors even when they have safeguard mechanism in place. Now coming to the other question on in the WTO, how do we ensure our food security concerns are addressed uh, in the run up to the MC12? I think Professor Das set a, set a very good background for me to intervene. Uh, there, I think he talked of the agriculture negotiations, where do we stand right now and, and, and what are the issues that are very dear to us? Uh, the, the PSH, the public stock holding. And that is, I think, one of the uh, issues that we got some mandate under the Bali ministerial declaration. But I think uh, recently India also advocated because India had tried to use that mechanism and then uh, to you know, uh, see whether that mechanism is actually practical, feasible. I think India ran into a lot of difficulties and that is now being questioned. Yesterday when at the General Council, uh, the European Commission is questioning the notification which India had made on the PSH mechanism. Now coming to the special safeguard mechanism, and it is again, I think Professor Das injected the, the, the very um, uh, appealing uh, uh, reason as to why the, most of the developing countries require this, because they were not, uh, 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 they did not have the ability to invoke uh, uh, that uh, in terms of import surges uh, because unilaterally, because they have to adhere to the other WTO rules. So now SSM, uh, the Special Safeguard Mechanism, PSH, they are the most important aspects uh, which would decide the outcome of an of a, of a MC12. So if they are not getting meaningful results under that, uh, then it is, a, it is a recipe for another failure. 
Now, coming to the domestic support again, now we are very quite disturbed. Now, when the mandate is actually to address the trade distorting subsidies, uh, the proponents, particularly the, uh, the Keynes group and others, are trying to even include Article 6.2 uh, agriculture subsidies that are only available to the developing countries and considering that is also a distortive aspect and, and aiming to include that also in the calculation of uh, overall commitments uh, uh, and then address the cuts, uh, apply the cuts uh, to make further reductions. So like Thank you, Madam Ambassador. We'll have to under, yeah. undertake uh, negotiate uh, obligations uh, if this proposal is going to be- uh, I'm very sorry to cut you. This is right. really, you. really exciting conversation. Thank you, Mr. Madam Secretary, for joining us today. I'd like one question for you to uh, share your insights on, which is related to, we know this, our region, probably in terms of the disruption of livelihood, COVID has caused the biggest disruption in human history, affecting 1.7 million people. So we'd be falling behind with all the SDG targets. What can as a region we do so that we have a voice at WTO? Can WTO members do anything to catch up? So I leave that question to you and Thank you for share, joining us. I'm Joint Secretary here in the Ministry of Commerce, and I will. I'm speaking uh, as in my personal capacity. I just want to clarify this. Um, and uh, yes, SDGs are very important, and food security is part of the SDGs. Um, and in the WTO, what members can do is that first of all, they uh, must ensure that the inherent mandate of uh, continuing the agriculture negotiations under uh, Article 20 continues. They work on it and uh, develop effective multilateral discipline on domestic subsidies uh, so that small farmers across the world do not suffer and uh, their production is not displaced from the international markets. Countries can increase uh, expenditure on research and development so that more and more uh, drought resistant varieties are available to farmers and uh, integrate with the CGIER system of global research so that there is greater cooperation on issues such as climate change and strengthen the markets. Um, I think it is very important because of COVID, we do see disruption in the supply chains and markets. So we make a conscious effort at forum like W ensure that markets uh, remain stable and we cooperate with each other because if domestic and international markets are strengthened, farmers will get better prices. And to make agriculture profitable, and so there is nothing more important than getting a good price of your produce. So I would say that uh, uh, it is one of the primary responsibilities of the government um, and as countries in the WTO forum to ensure that uh, we uphold uh, markets for the benefit of poor farmers and ensure uh, fair trade for them and ensure also their participation in the value chains uh, by providing them, uh, you know, storage facilities. And uh, many participants have highlighted very important aspects uh, of uh, uh, trade as well as uh, participation in the domestic markets as well as in the international and uh, regional markets. So I think uh, we need to have. Uh, interventions prepared at various levels. And now 
smart agriculture is being talked about number of mobile subscribers has increased all over the world so telecom is being used uh, even in uh, poor developing countries for the benefit of farmers so i think it's very important that we adopt technology and make sure that uh, uh, this uh, uh, technological growth also works for the benefit of our farmers thank you so let's go back to the question and answer session it has been a very very exciting conversation that we have had it was really insightful i have benefited quite a lot uh, so i'll go to the question and answer now so my first question will be uh, for um, aisha muriani from the ministry of commerce in pakistan this is about your trust on the technology part of it but the small holders don't yet have that technology access to technology to be effective in terms of the dissemination of the extension information what can region do as a whole or country specifically to address that challenge so that technologies can be disseminated more effectively so that they become more competitive in the global markets uh, yes i think uh, public policy can play a very important role here um, mm -hmm. i would say investment on infrastructure it infrastructure is very important and access to internet um across uh, country in remote areas can play a very effective role in ensuring that uh, the benefit of technology reaches to the uh, small farmers and uh, uh, i think it it uh, it's not something which is not possible because um, even a country like pakistan we have 70 to 80 million mobile subscribers and the use of 3g is becoming very popular even 4g so a mobile phone is something which has become a development tool now access to mobile phone um, is is no longer a luxury i would say um, and um, by ensuring easy access to this technology uh, we can ensure that farmers get information about the prices timely they get in information about the inputs that they have to use for their uh, uh, production and you know the similar uh, a lot of facilities are being organized now through online services so i think uh, a lot of uh, opportunity is there and uh, business development services to uh, connect farmers with all these new technological services can play a very important role in terms of ensuring connectivity um, so we are trying our best to Uh, disseminate this information uh, not only to the farmers but to the business development uh, services providers as well that uh, this new form of uh, service uh, which the uh, farmer community needs can bring win-win solutions not only for the service providers but for the farmers as well so uh, i think uh, ensuring access to technology Uh, was a challenge few years ago but i think the tools are available now and public policy can play a huge uh, role in terms of ensuring this access thank you so much very very insightful uh, i would pose a similar question to mr ajay veer jakar that actually i'll give a little twist to it and that twist is is there a room for public private partnership in this in disseminating the right kind of information to the smallholder agriculture 
not only for extension information, for the market information, integrating with global markets. What is your experience uh, in Indian context? And can there be regional cooperation to promote or facilitate that? Ajay? Thank you for this question. I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll... I'll answer it in two parts. The first one is uh, the very quick on the, I, I want to just add on to what the ambassador just said. I think there is, uh, we need technology, but we need more technology to make sure that the, there is better governance, that different departments, different ministries in different countries, they work together, state governments and central governments are able to communicate with each other, their information and programs. So coming to your question about use of technology between public private partnerships, I think there is a huge, huge potential. A lot of data is being collected. But at the same time, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but I want to put this point forward, not just for India, but for other countries, that data that's being collected from producers, from farmers, because of so many new technologies being there. If the government is to share that data with the private sector and monetize data that has been given in good faith, I think that is daylight robbery. I think, uh, yes, there is scope for technology, there's scope for data uh, to be shared, but we need to have some... Uh, we need to have institutions to ensure that data is not misutilized. And in the long run, that data does not allow for oligarchies to be created to suppress farm gate prices. And, 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 and this is something that needs to be flagged now. I think so at WTO also, it needs to be flagged in our part of the world that we should not come to a point where technology initially seems to be very good for development, and but in the long run, we need to have better institutions to ensure that it is, it is technology and data is not monopolized to suppress livelihoods and uh, prosperity. I, I understand it's not very positive an answer, but it's, it's more realistic, it's more grounded. And these are the fears that we have. Technology is many a times overrated. In a, it's mm -hmm. overrated in the short run. It's only in the longer term we realize that technology may not be as good as we thought it was. Look at what mm -hmm. fossil fuels have done and led to climate change. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much. My next question would be for Pamida from Bangladesh. There is a question from audience for you. Uh, this is about Bangladesh implements price support for rice farmers. How effective is this policy in protecting farmers' interest? especially during the pandemic. Famida, floor is yours. Thank you very much. Um, I would say that the government of Bangladesh has been um, consistently supporting the agriculture sector. That is one of the you know, successes of the government. And there is a continuity of support to the agriculture sector and the, and the farmers. So that um, I think also that the farmers have been able to take advantage of that and utilize that. So that is why they could deliver, they could produce, and it's doing quite well in terms of, you know, ha having the outcome of this support. Um, so I, I would, uh, oh, I would, uh, oh, Congratulate the government as, as well as the farmers themselves, uh, who have been very, very effective, very, um, you know, agile, resilient to whatever situation had been uh, in terms of, you know, external shocks, climate shocks, and also COVID shocks. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, next question I have is, we'll go to Ambassador Asilva. This is also related to the management of pandemic the way Sri Lanka has done. Sri Lanka has been successful in managing the pandemic. It was a success story uh, globally. 
So, but there are also colleagues who are looking into it more carefully in terms of the survey work. And they argue that actually what Sri Lankan government did undermined the market's power, a lot more control. How do you say that if that is the perspective coming up now, and then you have this success in managing uh, the pandemic, how do we explain that to the audience in our region in the context of dealing with pandemic consequences in the coming months and years? Yeah, uh, thank you for the opportunity. I think uh, uh, Sri Lanka adopted a very um, community-friendly approach towards uh, curtailing the pandemic, the spread of the pandemic. I think uh, the contact tracing and uh, the that was a very very robust and uh, and proven to be successful. And also, we use uh, our uh, inbuilt. Uh, uh, the facilities uh, in the health sector. And we had a very good network of uh, public health officials and uh, they helped and even the armed forces came in to rescue uh, in areas of where there were uh, gaps. I think uh, when it comes to distribution of food and commodities, uh, particularly during the pandemic, that was uh, one of the issues that where the private sector failed because of uh, lockdowns and other other measures. So the government uh, had to intervene. I think the 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 government intervention was quite uh, appreciated uh, by the communities, and uh, I think uh, uh, even in the fishery sector, I think. Uh, one good thing about the fishery sector is we allow them to uh, engage in fishery activities because they they but they they have restrictions uh, in conducting fishing activities only up to EZ uh, because they had to return within a day and uh, so I think uh, even the government intervened uh, and 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 un undertook uh, the distribution uh, channels. Now that is where the market dominance uh, became somewhat an. Uh, a uh, very uh, attractive feature for the government because the private sector failed. And uh, when there are, uh, otherwise, the, how do you ensure uh, the farmer mm -hmm. gets a good income? I think uh, that shows uh, that WTO rules sometimes uh, cannot be applied in situations like that. And we should be prepared with such measures, uh, government mm -hmm. interventions uh, in times of pandemic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Ambassador. We know we advocate market-friendly policies, but we also know market is not a panacea. Uh, invisible hands of markets often don't work, and then interventions are needed. But yet, there are a lot of conversation around the way our region is providing subsidies. It can be It cannot be financially sustainable. Uh, Famida just pointed out that Bangladesh did a good job in terms of managing the price volatility and supporting the farmers. But if you look at the numbers, I mean, subsidy bills are rising quite significantly in our region as well. So how do we balance that? How do we find, how do we find that our subsidies, not just in terms of the political consequences uh, and the developing developed country context, in our context, how do we rationalize those agricultural subsidies given the financial constraint and improve the livelihood. This is for Professor Abhijit Das. Uh, I know this is a sensitive topic, but you are the right person to respond to it. Thank you, Chair, for the question. Just to provide a bit of a context, the per farmer subsidy in United States is close to $60,000 per year. In South Asian countries, I would dare say it will be around 
two to three hundred dollars per year. So if uh, South Asian countries have to survive, this gap needs to come down. We cannot enhance our subsidies. What is relevant is can we get the developed world to bring down their subsidies? So that should be the first uh, response from my side. That should be the first step forward. Mm-hmm. And uh, within the South Asian countries, yes, we need to prop up. We need to support our public stockholding programs. I really do not see any substitute for that in the near future. Those will be resource intensive. But as we have seen in India during the pandemic phase, it was this public stockholding program which really, really prevented uh, millions of uh, Indians who were already at the margin of existence sliding into, I would say, hunger and real malnutrition. It was these food stocks which uh, prevented them from really leave it, leading a starvation existence. So I think the effort has to be geared towards making sure that purchasing power is provided. And one way of providing purchasing power is through these public stockholding programs. So short answer is, Yes, purse strings are tight, pockets are not deep, but there is no escape from the government's responsibility for making sure that public stockholding programs survive and remain vibrant. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, <clears throat> we are running out of time, but it has been extremely useful conversation. My last question will go to um, Madam Aisha Moriani. That actually came from our audience. Actually, most of the questions came from our audience. Thank you very much for submitting your questions. So uh, the question, this one is coming, is question is how are food and economic issues affecting the health of the population in general in the region? Uh, if you could share your perspective in the context of Pakistan. The point is very simple. The point the audience is making is if the families producing the food for the nation having financial difficulties, this is counterproductive situation. So our farmers who are producing food for the entire nation would be suffering from the health consequences. So if you could reflect your thoughts on that, Madam Moriani. Yes, thank you. Uh, farming community is very important part of Pakistan. And uh, they constitute 20% of the GDP of Pakistan. And uh, our uh, major crops uh, are contributing a lot to the economy. Uh, Cotton, which is one of the primary crops, uh, is the backbone of Pakistan's textile industry. Um, And similarly, rice, wheat uh, are very important for food security. Uh, but uh, 50% of the agriculture um, is actually coming from the livestock as well. So dairy and livestock is also very important. Uh, similarly, the minor crops, um, such as fruits and vegetable. Uh, but Pakistan uh, remains a uh, net food importing developing country because uh, we import a lot of our food. Um, and uh, with the climate change and, uh, you know, uh, the water stress situations. Uh, I personally think that uh, uh, we may import, uh, we may have to import more. Uh, So 
the focus of government policy is to ensure that our agriculture becomes sustainable and we prepare ourselves for drought-like situations and we are uh, trying to invest on uh, research and development and trying to integrate with the global research system um, uh, to, to foresee and uh, connect uh, the farmers with these future challenges by ensuring that uh, a right kind of uh, uh, you know, policy advice is available to the farmers. Um, and uh, the, in the rural areas, because of the COVID, obviously uh, health issue has become very important, but fortunately uh, 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 Pakistan, though uh, facing this challenge, uh, but our health uh, ministry and the health infrastructure has worked very efficiently. And by the grace of God, uh, we have been able to uh, handle this situation in a much better way uh, as compared to other countries. Um, and uh, awareness, I think, is extremely important. Adopting, uh, you know, um, uh, sanitation and uh, giving a lot of importance to SOPs uh, under... Uh, uh, COVID conditions is something which uh, a government has been trying to ensure and there are massive uh, awareness campaigns for this. And uh, um, our, mainly our agriculture right now uh, is affected a lot because of the uh, climate change. So this is a very serious issue for us and uh, um, foods at the federal level we used to have an agriculture ministry, but now it is called food security ministry. And the agriculture itself is with the provinces. So at the federal level, food security is extremely important. And uh, the policy ensures uh, that uh, sustainability and profitability uh, is there so that at least uh, you know, we continue to produce uh, for our own uh, population. But we know that uh, keeping in view the challenges we will continue to import. Uh, it, one of the challenges to, to uh, understand one's limitations uh, within the sustainability uh, dynamic and uh, try to ensure that international markets remain and food is uh, available and affordable uh, for everyone so that if countries like Pakistan want to import, they should be able to import. Uh, but at the same time, subsidies have to be disciplined so that the imported food should not displace our farmers uh, mm -hmm. whose uh, profitability and sustainability is also very important. Thank you, thank you, uh, Madam Moriani. That brings us to a very exciting close of the last part of the program. Uh, it has been really, really exciting. And the last part of this program is basically sharing your last thoughts on the issues. Uh, each of you will have 30 seconds to share your thoughts. But given uh, Madam Moriani did not get the first question, I'd like to start with you, Madam Moriani. One minute to share your last thoughts with our audience. Thank you. Yeah, uh, my thoughts uh, are that uh, I think IFPRI is a very good forum, uh, which uh, you know poses these type of issues, which have. Uh, domestic, regional, and international uh, implications. So uh, we have uh, um, MC12 coming up and hopefully agriculture will remain uh, a, a live issue. And uh, some of the uh, you know, important uh, topics uh, raised here will reach to that level and probably we would be able to 
develop some disciplines on domestic support, which I think is important for this region. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, absolutely. Thank you for the compliments to IPRI. I'm sure my colleagues at IPRI as well as the IISD co-organizers is taking note and take it forward. IPRI's job is to produce global public goods in terms of information. And that's what we try to do at IPRI. Thank you so much for the compliments. Let me also make this note at this point that this program is supported by a CGIL-wide program we call the Consortium Research Program, Policies in Institutions and Markets. They have supported it, not only here, in other sub-region level, we are very grateful for their support. Uh, next, I would like to invite um, Ambassador, Madam Ambassador, Gautima. Uh, yes, um, thank you again for the organizers uh, for this uh, very useful opportunity for me to uh, share my views as a, as a trade negotiator. Uh, I think uh, we must have, uh, should have uh, similar events uh, uh, in the future as well, leading up to MC12. Now, of course, MC12 most probably will be extended till end of next year. I think uh, the, because the pandemic is posing a lot of unprecedented challenges to all of us in organizing this event. Now, when, uh, when it comes to a negotiator's point of view, I think the agriculture is, as many said, is the key uh, for a failure or a successness. And of course, fishery now we, we have an added agenda uh, where we are supposed to conclude the negotiations by the end of this year, but we are not able to do because uh, we, we cannot commence um, substantive discussions uh, in this format, the virtual format. And uh, when it comes to agriculture, as I mentioned, the SSM and PSH are the important aspect now from Sri Lanka's point of view, without SSM, I don't think Sri Lanka is able to really accept a package under the agriculture file. And uh, I think uh, the PSH again, uh, proven to be an, a very useful uh, tool during the pandemic. That's where the farmers, I think uh, the rice farmers were able to get a better price uh, when through the government intervention and uh, which we normally do, uh, do not do that. But at times of pandemic, I think it became very, and even the fisheries sector was beneficial, benefited out of those interventions. The agriculture subsidies, I think uh, is the key uh, for agriculture's uh, improvement in our, our, our countries, the responsible investment in agriculture. The FAO has a lot of code of conduct uh, where we can really thank learn. Thank you, madam. Yeah, thank You're you. You're running really late. Thank you so much. Uh, next, may I invite uh, Professor Das? last-minute last thought. Compliments to the organizers for this wonderful event. The last message from my side is that the agreement on agriculture is riddled with lots of uh, deficiencies and imbalances which work against the interest of developing countries. So the negotiations, particularly uh, at MC12, must have a clear roadmap to address these issues. In particular, Maybe the starting point could be where we had left the Doha round in 2008. That text should be used to carry the negotiations forward and keeping in mind the huge asymmetries in the per farmer subsidy in the developed countries and those in the developing countries. Thank you. Thank you so much. I would also like to join others to thank uh, IFRI and uh, the other co-organizers. Um, 
the people have talked about the our experts have talked about the MC12, but given the uh, you know situation of the um, um uh, the Doha round negotiation for the last several several years, I don't know how much optimistic I should be. But even then, um, a multilateral trading system is the last uh, you know resort probably because we are observing many you know FTAs have been discussed and and also regional comprehensive economic partnerships are coming up. But for smaller countries, for the less powerful countries, it is always to deal in a multilateral system. So that's what I'm looking forward to, that the MC12 will resolve a number of issues, including the agricultural trade. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Fameda Khatun. With that, we come to the end of this very exciting uh, session. I thoroughly enjoyed being with you, listening to you, and my colleagues, I'm sure, have been watching, colleagues from IPRI as well as from the ISD, and they have taken notes. We'll remain engaged, let's remain engaged and see what we can contribute to this important cause. With that, we come to the end of it. Thank you so much once again.